you have to have an advocate. You have to have an advocate who's willing to really go to bat for you and and believe in the science and believe in, you know, that it's important enough that you find ways to do things. That's Dr. Anna Barker, Chief Strategy Officer at the Ellison Institute, which is a think tank and research institute. Before that, she was the Principal Deputy Director of the U.S. National Cancer Institute and Deputy Director for Strategic Scientific Initiatives there. Hi, and welcome to Conversations with Scientists. I'm Vivian Marks. I do these podcasts as a way to share more of what I find out in my journalism travels. Today's episode is based on a conversation with Dr. Anna Barker, someone I have wanted to speak with for a long time. Yes, if you know her, you know this episode will be about cancer. It will also be about academia, physics, information theory, big data, history, and science policy. It's about finding advocates and supporters for projects, building alliances, and consortia, big ones. Dr. Barker takes you on an intellectual and intriguing journey, I find, through all these topics. Of course, cancer is, in its core, upsetting. But I don't think this episode will necessarily feel upsetting. It might even feel empowering. You can let me know how you find what she says. She is perhaps most well-known for having co-founded at the National Cancer Institute the project called the Cancer Genome Atlas, which is a project that began in 2006 and ran for 12 years and that ran cancer research and genomics on a big scale indeed. The teams, and there were many, many scientists and clinicians involved, characterized in a molecular way over 20,000 samples from tumors in 11,000 patients. And they did the same with samples of healthy tissue from the same people. And the teams did this analysis for 33 cancer types in total. In cancer research, the Cancer Genome Atlas is a rather well-known and highly accessed data resource. It was a collaboration between the National Cancer Institute and the National Human Genome Research Institute, NHGRI. It has generated around 2.5 petabytes of data. The programs Dr. Barker led when she was Principal Deputy Director of the U.S. NCI and Deputy Director for Strategic Scientific Initiatives there include a long list, the Cancer Genome Atlas, which I just mentioned, and which she developed along with colleagues at the NHGRI, and she led many other projects, including the Physical Sciences Oncology Centers program that connects physicists, mathematicians, engineers, and cancer scientists. Dr. Parker has many tales to tell about the past, the present, and the future of cancer research and cancer treatment, about research and policy more generally, about doing big things and getting those off the ground, about data sharing and why people don't share data, and what to do to get them to share. We jumped right in talking about epigenomics and about how invisible that field was for a long while. Genomics involves the study of DNA and RNA, and epigenomics involves chemical modifications of DNA and RNA. One of those types of modification is methylation. These modifications are turning out to be a kind of real-time tuning, and they indicate changes happening to the genome right now. 
You will hear more about this from Anna Barker. First, just to explain the people she mentions, there's, for example, Peter Laird. For a story, I had spoken with Dr. Peter Laird at Van Andel Institute, and he is someone who has long worked on epigenomics. It turns out he is also someone Anna Barker knows well. And the Dr. Collins she mentions, just adding that as well, is Dr. Francis Collins, the former director of the U.S. National Institutes of Health. And before that, he led NHGRI, and he is co-founder of TCGA with Dr. Barker. Here's Dr. Barker on epigenomics. It's a very interesting story in its own right. When we started the Cancer Genome Atlas, um, uh, epigenomics was really nowhere. I mean, you know, it was kind of a glint in people's eyes. And and actually, my good friend, Dr. Collins, and I didn't agree on including it. And so I, I said, okay, well, so what I did was I, you know, I had, as the principal deputy, the director of NCI, I had my own money, of course. And of course, I had our budget, our NCI budget to work from. And so I set up a little pilot, and that pilot was essentially part of, it was Peter Laird and Peter Jones and um, a few other people working uh, in very early, very early on epigenomics. And as it turned out, I mean, it was one of the most, it was one of the wisest things I did, <laughs> because I mean, I if you think about it just briefly, in retrospect, of course, everything in retrospect looks much clearer. But, uh, you know, I, I was thinking back to that, those days, and if you really think about, you know, and I'll digress here, but if you think about the epigenome, especially the methylome, which is the way nature has decided to sort of totally can reconfigure uh, as it needs to for an individual in, in real time, um, that's the way it, that's the way it happens. And so if you look at these very early detection assays now we have in oncology, I'm not surprised, nor anyone should be, I think, that the, the methylation approach is the first one out of the gate, you know, the Roche tests, um, to say that we can detect cancer very early because you likely will have a signal there. And um, I don't yet know what we're going to do about that. I mean, I think it's a very interesting question, one that you should write about. But, um, you know, what do we do with that? And uh, if the data turns out to be real, and I suspect it will, um, that, you know, it does open up, I think it's kind of, I use this term only guardedly sometimes, I think it's an inflection point in cancer, in the whole of cancer research. You know, we are, to be really candid, Vivian, you know, we didn't sequence all the genes and do all this work over these decades just to treat cancer, right? So we want to use that information now and that data to prevent cancer or downstage cancer or, you know, so is it possible? I don't know. A lot of people are naysayers, you know, they say, well, no, because what do we do with that? We don't know if they're going to live any longer. Well, living longer isn't the only thing that you can do for patients, you know, and, and, and personally, I think they could live longer if we make better drugs and so, and better biologics and better interventions, which will, I mean, that's what happens. People underestimate when you have a when you have something like this, how it drives the technology development community, how it drives the people who are really thinking deeper about, you know, in this case, how do you actually prevent something if you know it's coming? We, you know, we've done this with other diseases over the years. That's where that's why we have vaccines. And um, 
So, you know, I'm very enthusiastic about Peter Laird and everything that he contributed. He was one of the first people actually to come up with a way to measure these things, you know, I mean, in, in terms of the- The assay that he developed, this- uh, Yeah, said the light, was, yeah, but yeah, the something light assay. It was, I've forgotten the name of it. It was really powerful. And um, so, and and then my colleague from the Hutch, um, Bob Day and I, really saw a lot of potential in those assays. And um, so it, it was, you know, we were always, I was always very interested in what he did and um, in the Johns Hopkins group as well. So. You know, they, and they collaborated on this. So I, I, you know, I just think it was, um, he's a man who was way ahead of his time. And sometimes that's good. Sometimes, it, you know, people challenge you when you're way ahead of your time. So, Indeed, some are way ahead of their time. I wondered about what kind of strategic advice she has for people cooking up a potentially big idea and one that is ahead of its time. You have to have an advocate. You have to have an advocate who's willing to really go to bat for you and and believe in the science and believe in, you know, that it's important enough that you find ways to do things. And I never buy the fact that, you know, it's people ask me, how do you do big things? And I say, well, if your idea is good or even great, uh, then, you know, that's where you that's that's the whole that's the whole sort of nucleus of what you want to accomplish. But then you have to start, and most people don't start. That's where they fail. And then you have to do the work, and a lot of people don't want to do the work. And so, you know, it's 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 three key steps. And if you don't, if you if your idea isn't a great idea, you'll find out pretty quickly uh, if you start. But you know, I think most great ideas, people don't have the confidence to start. So what I do is I help people start, and then you know, once we find a way forward, then it, it you know things work. And uh, uh, TCGA is one of those that um, it's it was obvious. It's I mean it was very obvious. I wondered how she went about setting up big ideas and big science in biology. The Cancer Genome Atlas came about when big science and big data in biology were not at all typical. At the time, as she explains, scientists were decoding cancer genes one at a time. But of course, that would have meant it would take a long time to complete the cancer genome. So they discussed a different approach to the cancer genome, an approach that didn't exactly come together in just one meeting or two. Oh no, there were lots of long days and long nights, yes. The ideas are, the, the critical step is the idea. I mean, you know, no, you, you have creative, great creative people who have great ideas. I mean, like Elon Musk is a great idea guy, and he's one of those people who starts and he does the work. That, there's no secret to what he has done, actually. I mean, you know, he's an amazing thinker. And But the one thing I think that you need to have in, the, in something like TCGA or anything else that where you're starting here, but you have to see out far enough to see where this field is going to go and uh, has to go. So if you start thinking back to 2003 and four, we had just finished the sequencing of the human genome. Now, it's interesting when you think about that. And one of the things that encouraged me is that most of the genes that have been discovered to that point actually were cancer genes. I mean, you know, so in cancer, going all the way back to the 1930s, we, you know, I don't know how many Nobel Prizes, but many um, 
that focused on the discovery, the oncogenes, finally the suppressor genes, et cetera. So we had a very big footprint in genomics already. And um, we at NCI had really followed up on that with Dr. Collins and his groups at NIHGRI. So we had several other projects ongoing at the same time that were you know, dealing with germline mutations, et cetera, et cetera. So when you, and, and uh, when we started talking about this uh, at NCI with NHGRI, Dr. Collins and I agreed 100% on, you know, if you think about the Cancer Genome Atlas, that would have potentially, if we had left this to discovering and actually sequencing and characterizing one genomic change at a time, over time, it's hard to estimate how many decades it would have taken. It would have probably taken several hundred cancer genome projects or genome projects overall. So it made perfect sense. I mean, when you start thinking about it, it, it there was no secret there in terms of, is this something that should be done? The answer was, could it be done? And so we were cautious in the early days about this because there was so much uh, anti-big science, whether you love the human genome project or you didn't, uh, most people that, you know, are, are one scientist, the kind of science we support mostly at NCI, which is, you know, an individual investigator's idea. That's about, that's always been more than 50% of the science we support at NCI, still is. And on the NCAB, we still have, you know, if you look at our budget, that's where most of them, a big part of the money goes into that, individual scientists. Um, but what they didn't get, and, and many of them were very vocal about the fact this was the end of science as we knew it. Um, and I think they published, they didn't publish in Nature, by the way, they published in Science, I think they only published in Nature. But, and by the way, Nature was one of, I think, a significant advantage for this project because we early on decided that we would like to publish all these papers as a compendium, you know, as an atlas and as something that people could follow, know where to look for it, et cetera. So we did, we did that. We did two things that I think were really important in terms of it becoming a sort of a living kind of atlas that would continue to grow and the data would continue to expand and be more and more user-friendly. And, and that was to sit down with nature and say, would you be willing to publish all these papers? I mean, and they said, yes. And I think that made a huge difference. The second thing is we had, you know, hundreds of people working on this project, but, you know, we had the leadership. Um, and so what we decided is let's just call this, you know, let's call it what it is. It's essentially the Cancer Genome Atlas Consortium. And um, that team essentially uh, we gave in the early days, we've got credit to the people who actually took the writing on um, the four or five people, but essentially we just credited, you know, we, we had in that first nature paper, the list of authors was longer than the paper, I think. So. The list of actors is longer than the paper itself. Wow. There's a link to that paper in the show notes. The issue of long author lists on papers is still an ongoing issue, of course. At some point in time, you just don't have to put everybody's name in there. I think you just say that I think the publisher can associate that 
and we can use whatever acronym we want or whatever, but I think the time has come to sort of say, yes, uh, yes, that per if there's a question about that person being part of the TCA team, then, you know, we can go ask nature or you can, but I, I, yeah, it's a, it, it is an issue because the, now we're talking, you know, even more people involved in some of these sequencing projects. But getting back to 2004, um, that discussion, though, was let's start small. Let's figure this out. And we had a lot of things to figure out. So my plan for this from NCI standpoint, and, and fortunately, uh, Dr. Collins and NHGRI agreed, let's organize this as a project that is focused on quality of data, quality of samples, quality of DNA. So let's make this more than just another project. You know, where we'll have all kinds of questions about the quality of the data. Let's do the best we can to set this up in a way that it becomes a flywheel and we can put more tumors through it as we actually understand the technology and how to collect the data, how to manage the data but mostly uh, how to do this in a way that actually sets up uh, a data set that's going to be, you know, going to have longevity and actually be of high value for a very long time. Right. And, and also and, the the healthy normal and the uh, paired, I guess, uh, and all of these things. So you were thinking about usage down the line, right? So that's yes. probably guidance for, for yeah. others. Okay. Yeah, because you don't want to, I mean, you, you can't just be as good as you are in current days, you've got to be much better than that. So so we try to set the stage in terms of quality of everything in the project. And it was a, essentially a very well run machine. And we had a strong team at the NCI that met every single week. I chaired that personally for the first seven years of it. And we, you know, we, we agreed, we disagreed, wow. we, you know, we disagreed, we uh, we were very careful with this project because it was a lot of money and it was an incredibly important project for cancer. And, and I think for the Genome Institute as well. So, you know, we, we I think we have a lot, we had lots of debates during those years. Um, but I, I mean, even starting out, we decided to do three tumors in a pilot. So, uh, or, so to get this project approved, you know, I had to go through the boards at the NCI. And even though I was the principal deputy director, uh, it was a big change from, you know, the way that NCI operated. Um, we had contributed to projects like this, but we had never led a project like this. So, um, so it, you know, we had to, we had to convince the boards. And one thing that made sense um, to the boards was let's do this as a pilot. Let's see if this can be, see if this can work, especially something organized this tightly, you know, with the data collection, center defined uh, essentially the data those the specimen collection the quality of the samples defined um how the dna is going to be extracted and ultimately the rna etc and ultimately the kind of work that peter laird and his group did so how is that all going to be controlled and then what are the standard operating procedures for something like this that everybody can use and everybody can recognize i mean something as trivial as uh, may sound trivial, but you know, how do you ship these samples and be sure the quality of the sample would you start? So, um, so all of that, and then then we had in the early days, 
we had these genome characterization centers, which NCI supported, and then we had uh, NHGRI sequencing centers. And so, so if you take all those pieces and put them together then in a management structure, and that's what it was, we managed it. I mean, it was a, it was a project that involved literally uh, tens of, I don't know, if it, it, at its height, I think we had more than probably 100 plus institutions involved. And, and on any given analytics team for any of these cancers, there was well over 100 scientists working uh, in the analysis of this data. So, so what we saw, though, and what we anticipated, and I think reasonably well, was that TCGA would drive technology development, and it did. So, um, you know, we started out with doing what in retrospect may have been fairly simple Sanger sequencing, you know, short read sequencing. It's as good as it was. I mean, it was, it was uh, the tumor we did first was uh, GBM. That's the first paper that we published. And uh, that was a learning curve. <laughs> One of the things we learned is our samples that we had collected in the country weren't very good. We had not paid attention to things like, you know, the time after surgery that you leave a sample at room temperature or, you know, a thousand other issues that can cause the sample to not be high quality. You have mostly um, decay versus live cancer cells. The TCGA lobbying for it internally at NIH and externally Organizing it, running pilots, evaluating, and then scaling it up, this all seems to hold such invaluable lessons. So let me take a side road there. Maybe we should write this up for nature. Maybe we should write up TCGA history. I think it would be a great learning curve for a lot of people. I've been asked to do it, but I frankly have never had the time. And um, uh, But Francis is also uh, kind of quasi-working out of the White House. Maybe he and I could put our heads together. I mentioned to Anna Barker what Helen Berman told me, who co-founded the Protein Data Bank. She remembered that colleagues were concerned when the war on cancer was declared during the Nixon administration. Scientists wondered what they would work on if cancer were solved, so to speak. She said that people were having meltdowns uh, privately with her saying, what do we do when they've solved cancer? You've probably heard this too. And she's, yeah. she told me this story. She said, hooray, we'll find other things to do. Don't worry about it. Yeah, we'll, we'll open restaurants, people. We'll bake bread. You know, people won't be dying from this hor horrible disease. Um, but the lessons so, are so powerful that you have to tell. So, yes, uh, please. So, uh, so just a side trip, though. So yep. one of the reasons that I that prompted me actually to go to the NCI with my good friend Andy von Eschenbach is just this. I thought that. At that time, you could see on the horizon that somewhere out here, as we begin to sequence the genome, that we would be able to actually precisely predict what people should get for their disease. As we learn more about the causative genes, et cetera. Predict uh, what drugs the, the What drugs, should... yeah, oh, what drugs, and, and also build better diagnostics as we're doing now for earlier and earlier detection. And so well, the reason, really the reason I went to NCI was to set the stage for precision oncology. That's what I wanted to do. And that's effectively, if I have any contribution that I think I've made, it was that because I also uh, set up the proteome project, which is now really changing the proteomics landscape. And that's 
going to lead to a whole bunch of new drugs and other and we had to had to tie that back to TCGA so we can determine you know what proportion of the genome is really cancer genome is really ultimately translated and then um I, I set up something called the cancer bioinformatics grid which we which was quite successful it was a very big grid uh, unfortunately when you change leadership at NCI you change focus and so that was not popular with you know with an incoming director so but that was a real step forward it taught people how to work together how to share data um and and it was uh, we had i don't know probably 80 or so institutions on the grid when they yeah i remember reporting on that the ca big yeah yeah that was very it was actually way ahead of its time but quite successful for what it did and and ultimately i wish we still had it um because it would have grown, I think, quite significantly and, and probably would have brought in the private sector at some point to somebody need to take this over at some point and scale it. Um, but it was a it was a good it was a great step forward. I also set up the nanotechnology initiative, which was probably uh, also quite controversial. But the point in all of this is you, when you're working at the molecular level, you've got to be able to deliver this stuff. And so we're just getting to that now in the pharma industry. And there are lots of nano products now that are coming out and, and it'll be, I mean, the nano constructs will be critical as we move into AI and start to use these data because you're going to, you're going to have to capture diagnosis and therapy in the same nano constructs. And so, and you're going to have to, some of this is going to, it's already happening, but this is the future. I mean, you can see this coming. We'll, we're already having people swallow pills you know, that are that are actually being able to track things through their digestive system, this kind of stuff. What I liked about this conversation was the way Anna Barker's past set the stage for the future in cancer research. And it was great to hear about her path at NCI, for example, the connections she built because she trained in multiple disciplines, including biophysics. And then um, I set up something late in my tenure at NCI because I trained in biophysics, chemistry, and I believe in understanding that we live, we are three-dimensional beings. Our cells are also three-dimensional as it turns out. <laughs> Nothing is going on in two dimensions anywhere. Yes, you can see Olivia there is all doing her thing. So <clears throat> I set up something called the Physical Sciences Oncology Centers, which brought and the thing that made them really different is a physicist had to be the principal investigator along with an oncologist. And I think they have brought a lot of change to oncology. We're starting to think about the temporal aspects as well as the spatial aspects of cancer. And, and it may very well turn out that if you think about what cancer is and how we still diagnose it, as a pathologist looks through a microscope, they see changes in the way the cell is actually constructed in terms of especially changes in its membrane, et cetera. That's the way we diagnose cancer. Someone looks through a microscope and says, oh, the shapes have changed, et cetera. That's all spatial and that's information. And so I think we're getting to a point now, and I'll come back to that, where we're starting, and you see this in digital pathology now, where we're starting to now define these things in terms of changes in the genomics and what's being translated in the proteome. So I wanted to circle to also to the data sharing behavior. I know that everybody's noble and virtuous and all of that, but we well, also every, know everybody isn't noble and virtuous. Sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay. Most so, people are. Yeah. Most people. So 
how have you seen and and i guess it would be okay to say that the physicists sort of also oh, the mathematicians also i guess led to a culture change but how have you seen the culture change and you know you've talked to the junior clinicians or the junior phds who are saying wait my data i need to still build my career with it let me hug it tight and not share it just yet i mean how has that kind of i mean tcga changed that obviously but there's still sort of hesitancy in some quarters to not change share so early. Um, so I would be interested to hear as you uh, talk about the TCGA involving how that behavior has changed. I'll, I'll answer yep. your question, but isn't it interesting to think about the fact that we had a huge team at TCGA, all of whom voluntarily shared their data. I mean, well, yeah, I made it. Ma I mandated it, but you know, it, it's the government. You can push back on the government, and and they, I'm sure in the early days there were people who probably held their data back. Um, we went after them. We we said no. If you want to play with us, you've got to play by our rules. That's hard for the government to do, um, and um, it's very interesting when you think when you step back now and see that you know it's the individual investigators that are forced now to protect their data because they're on their own or they view themselves as kind of being out there looking for tenure, looking for promotion, looking for whatever they're looking for. So this is a big issue in academic, I think I think in academics in general, but especially academic medicine and the people I mean, who are not training, the Cedars, Sinai, and not the Broad Institutes. They're, they they know, they they're have pretty good. The big, the big labs get it. I think the big labs get it. And, um, and Broad especially, of course, Broad was extraordinarily involved in TCGA and people like Eric Lander and with a great colleague um, and Gaddy Getz. I mean, these are people who helped us to sort of formulate these policies and, and were very forthcoming with their data. And, and the big labs are like that. They, they know the value of sharing data. Um, but there is this thing, and I've, I've met with university presidents when I was at NCI, you know, if you continue to hold these people accountable in ways that demand that they keep their data in terms of getting tenure, publishing in nature, publishing in science, publishing in cell, they're going to, you know, you tend to, you tend to get the behavior you reward. And so, you know, for us to move forward, and this is just escapes me. Um, we're dealing with the human genome here. Now in cancer, it's a dysfunctional human genome. And I say, I view cancer as a disease of communication, um, very, very unregulated communication, but communication nevertheless is dysregulated. And at some point in our lives and maybe in generations to come, but we're gonna have to know all that data. I mean, what's really interesting about this, it's a the genome is is finite. I mean, you know, it, yes, it changes. It's infinite in the sense that, you know, you can change it with somatic mutations and there maybe there's no end to those. I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting question to ask. Is there is there an infinite number of changes that can occur in the genome? We don't know the answers to that, but I doubt it. I mean, I, I there are probably so many ways that you can affect DNA, um, but you have to know pretty much everything. I mean, eventually you're going to have to have that whole book written in terms of this cancer genome is a cancer genome. I mean, you know, and, and it, it will probably be 
I mean, we're already, we, you know, we've seen it over the last couple of decades, you know, you're starting to treat uh, stomach cancer with the same drugs that you're treating CML, et cetera, et cetera, because the mutations are by and large going to be overlapping. And um, th there are things, and so we've come to call those things drivers. I always challenge people to tell me what they mean by that because no one actually knows, but they know that it's important. It's an important gene. It's a signal. <laughs> yeah. But that's another that's another word we use all the time that we don't understand. So um so there are only so many ways to signal that we know of in, in, in the whole of science. And uh, until you figure out what that means relative to the genome, you're you're gonna be um, still guessing. I wondered, given the wealth of data the genome has yielded, and there's plenty of data still to come, it seems that data need to be sort of forever data. Data need longevity because data collected today might yield insight soon or in five years or even way beyond those five years. Yeah, and that's what that's what we try to build into TCGA. And, and, and you know, a lot of people would say, well, I would have done it this way or that way. But you know, at the time we didn't know even how to organize the data. And the one thing that I think the big labs contributed to a lot um, is helping us to organize the data and start to build the kind of analytics that would allow you to functionalize the data. So the one thing um, that I think is getting back to your question on, you know, why people don't share data, that's not gonna go away until we change the reward system in universities and you reward people for sharing their data. I mean, you if you if you do that and they can demonstrate that their data has value and they've shared it out, uh, that will make all the difference in the world. I mean, just turn that little knob, you know, and say, Instead of hanging on to your data, let's reward you for sharing it because that's going to change the world. And if enough people do that, you can start to build repositories that we could only dream of. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. especially people who are doing very, very specific aspects of the genome. And we could have specialized data lakes for, you know, for to ask certain questions. I like this discussion. This is a discussion that is very important in terms of where we go, because we're at an inflection point in data collection in, in cancer. And I use the word data, not information. You have to bring context to it. Uh -huh. And if you can't bring context, it's just entropy. Point is that we are at an inflection point. And secondly, we have to bring the theoreticians to the data. We do not have them in oncology. We do not have them in biology. We have no Except for evolution, we don't have any theories. <laughs> Beyond the need for theories, Anna Barker mentioned cultural aspects about science. Of course, there is a difference between locating cancer patients, finding ways to obtain consent. So when these people have surgery, some samples can be donated to research. One needs to do that, but one also needs to make sure the sample is well prepared for research. Then there are those other people who download the data of others to use in their own analysis. There has been some name calling, awful name calling. There has been talk of these people as data parasites. No, that's not the bad, the bad term. Um, but again, we have to change the culture. If we don't change the culture in terms of data sharing, then you will get you'll get these people calling the people who use that data parasites. But the truth is, if 
data is um, data is for sharing. And whatever data you have, you can only do a limited amount with it unless you can bring in a lot more data. I mean, it's like artificial intelligence today. You know, we're making decisions on that are completely underpowered. And so, you know, you, you have to have enough data and you have to have the right data. It has to have metadata. You know, it, 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 the whole thing needs to be rethought. At this year's AACR meeting, the American Association for Cancer Research, I attended a session on NIH's new rules about data sharing with scientists presenting from the NIH. Data do not flow from a sequencer right into a repository where others can use the data. Data need to be prepared. They need to have metadata. It's expensive, and it's expensive. Right. And somebody so, has to pay for it. And uh, frankly, the biggest issue we have is getting data from patients. Clinical data is extraordinarily hard to get, not because it's not there. It's just not easily accessible. And uh, we started TCGA. There were lots of people who said the electronic medical records and this would be very easy. But of course, they had to do it by hand. And so the first couple, three tumors that we did in the pilot uh, that was mostly people going in for hours on end and actually finding the data by wow, hand. My, my hand it. is kind of, that's mind blowing. And of course you need the permissions. And I understand, I mean, as a patient, I understand that you don't want just somebody from wherever taking your personal uh, encounter with breast cancer or pancreatic cancer. You, you, I understand that patients have a word to say on this, but by hand, Wow. Yeah, no, that was the early days. So getting back to the way we did the pilot then was just that. We learned uh, for everything. We learned about everything, what worked, what didn't work. And uh, so the boards were, our boards at NCI were reasonably impressed with the first couple tumors that we were working on, which was uh, the first one was GVM and then ovarian cancer. Um, and, and then uh, you asked a very smart question, you know, did we have in mind doing 33 tumors when we started? We had in mind doing 20. And we thought that was a huge reach. But, you know, as it turned out, the technology matured and came online. And so we were able to, you know, after I left in 2010, um, then they were able to carry on the project and do 33 and, and pick up some of the rare cancers, which was really a great thing. Uh, but what happened in those years was, uh, you know, the process worked, uh, everybody collaborated. And so if you ask me why that worked, essentially people want to be part of something that's going to change the world. And so careers were made there. I mean, you know, that that's how people got a lot of the tickets punched because they were willing to do something that they knew was much, much more important than any small piece of science they would be doing. Not to trivialize any small pieces of science. I'm a very big supporter of individual investigator-initiated research. But without the TCGAs, you can't do the kind of science that you could do if those projects were available to you. And we've shown that. And so I think we've shown now that the, the two really reinforce each other. You know. Big science is very important to actually doing the work that will allow individual scientists to ask better questions and answer big problems as opposed to doing one more gene. And that, and that doesn't help a lot. Um, so, so over the course of the project, um, 
there were lots of learning curves. And so when I discovered that 30% of the samples in the country didn't qualify for TCGA, I mean, sorry, only 30% qualified. Sorry, I got that upside down. Yeah, only, only 30, 30. Oh. 30% of the early samples. And, and then, so we had to go to a process. So we had very high standards for our samples. You know, they had to be 80% tumor nuclei, et cetera, et cetera. They had to, you know, they had to have been handled correctly by the surgeon and by the pathologist. Um, and then we had, you know, a group of outstanding pathologists nationally who looked at the sample and guaranteed us it was what they, you know, what the uh, originator said it was. And, and then we had, you know, then we had, uh, we purchased samples as well from, so people got the message that, oh, there's, you know, there's, this is something that you can probably, you know, make money on. And so there are, to this day now, there are people who provide very high quality samples for people. So, and collecting a good sample is expensive and it takes people, it takes time, it takes very careful attention to detail. So, I mean, all the way back then, it, collecting a good sample cost about $4,000. I mean, so it's a lot of money. So you're investing when you collect, when you start collecting samples. Now, that's for, you know, a surgical sample. Blood is obviously much less expensive. Um, but, you know, that's turned out to be very important. So let me just tell you a quick story. One of the reasons I wanted to go to NCI to set up these precision oncology sort of early projects so we could move the field was um, because I knew that the power of the sample was going to be very important, that, that the quality of the sample would turn out to be very important. And I discovered that from some work that I did before I went to NCI working with the private sector, when I asked them what their biggest problem was, they said, they can't get quality samples. That's the industry. I mean, that's the pharma industry. So I said, whoa, that's, that's a big deal. So we did a report at NCI. We set up guidelines for how you collect a great sample. They're all still there. I set up even an office of biorepositories and biospecimen research under Dr. Carolyn Compton. And at that time, the UK was attempting to set up a national biobank, which was our intent as well, a national biobank and a national biorepository and a national data set. Would that be nice? Think about that for a second. So, and that's exactly what the UK did. Right. And, and now everybody's using, using the data. UK biobank. And so I mean, it's had, also, yeah. they've done that huge uh, sample. They also are, have all kinds of other data, MRI data, and, and it's like the electronic health records are. I, uh, could not, yeah, I could not convince our boards to do that because essentially the argument was left to their own devices. Everybody should be able to collect their own samples and it'll all work out. I mean, that's kind of where we were and where we still are, to be honest. Um, I mean, people there, you know, there are, pockets of people who collect great samples and, and they work with those. And that produces some of the data you're talking about that people don't like sharing because it's, they know it's high quality and they know it's probably, uh, they, they can probably convert it into revenue in some way. And that's what the industry has learned and others have learned. So, um, you know, it's, yeah. but this I mean, so if, insightful. Then, yeah. yeah, if we had set up that national database, that national dire repository then, I, I I can't even imagine where we'd be now. And right. so, 
That's and also thing. all populations would, would have been included. Right. Also those who are, yes. are having a harder time getting cancer treatment and minorities and people of color. And, uh, yeah, everybody had their own reasons for not doing it, but we did a good job of actually defending it, uh, doing a business plan for it so it could be set up. Uh, we kind of used as a model um, the transplant program in the country then, you know, organ transplantation as a, an example of something like this. Um, but uh, anyway, that's one of my failures was not getting that done. And no, um, there's still time and there's still there, really need. Is. there still is an urgent need. And so I guess the lesson also for me as I write is you don't have good data if you don't have good samples and a good process in place. Right. You can't right. just sequence whatever from whoever and then no. uh, think that you yeah. can fill repositories meaningfully. There are people who disagree with this. I mean, people who say, well, if I just collect enough data, the quality won't matter. I'll figure it out. Oh. We don't have any, we have no algorithms yet that I know of that are that powerful. So I've just written about big data recently and how, how much is it really of value in terms of informing what we're doing for patients. And that's really not the issue. The issue is a bigger one. And that is going back to square one is what we've just talked about is having enough good data and with enough power to actually say that you can, you really can define information. Most biologists do not understand that data is not information. Information is a is a term, it's a real thing in physics. And so data without context is just entropy, it's just noise. And so to go from where we are to having just terabytes of data on a patient, or you know, in this case, we're building petabytes of data into all kinds of data resources. You have to understand how you're going to convert that to information. And to do that, you're going to have to have theoreticians come to help us. Uh, and I, I'm a great fan of Shannon information theory. Shannon, Claude Shannon, created everything that allows us to do everything with these phones. You know, So he figured out in with sound, how do you separate signal from noise? And he did it in the 1940s. And he's a genius and he loved, by the way, he loved biology and, and he had some very strong thoughts about biology, even oh. a paper in 1949, he publishes paper on, you know, on Shannon information theory. And there are other theories, not just that one, but that's my favorite and because it makes perfect sense. But the truth is the information that is in the digital part of the genome, okay, that's the DNA, that gets translated across both space and time when you're going from DNA to RNA to the protein and then how the methylation groups actually then contort and change the DNA itself. So all of that is in theory predictable, but it's theoretically predictable, but you have to have people who know how to look in the genome differently than we do today. And um, I think the Googles of the world get this, um, and I think there are, at least in the private sector, there are people likely doing this already. I think I see evidence that that's the case. But for us to move, I think the whole sort of establishment that's going to depend on using big data in a effective ways for patients, we've got to get more of these people who are trained into our areas and, and into the teams that actually are trying to create information. 
So, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a real brain change for people. I, I People think if they have data, they have information, but they don't. So uh, I think that's a, that's a, it's really is, uh, we have a couple of inflection points or maybe more than two right now in oncology. And what we do at this point is going to, is going to in many ways derive uh, how quickly we can change something like cancer in terms of preventing it, downstaging it, and, uh, and ultimately treating it with much more effective therapies. So we need much more effective therapies for sure. So and that's my game. I am very much about using the information to make the lives of people better. And if we can do that uh, for cancer, uh, that, you know, I'll be happy. So <laughs> I will have met one of my goals. I, I lost my whole family to cancer. Couldn't oh. save a single one. I'm Didn't sorry. Save. No, it, it's, you know, it, it's just, it tells you the story of cancer is that you can know a lot about cancer. You can know everyone, but if you don't know enough, uh, then, you know, my sister died, for example, of breast cancer uh, about two to three years before Herceptin came on the market. So that's, you know, that look at that three year window made all that would have made all the difference in her life. So and it's that's why research is so critical. It changes. I mean, an advance in research can make a, you know, can make a whole change for a generation. At this point in the conversation, and cancer has taken the lives of people I care about too, I felt empowered, which Anna Barker's bright mind enabled, and her wit. I think humor is important in cancer research. You have to have, uh, we, we fail a lot. So, you know, you have to be, uh, you have to be uh, witty at least a bit. So take it, don't take yourself too seriously. That was Conversations with Scientists. Today's episode was with Dr. Anna Barker, Chief Strategy Officer at the Ellison Institute, which is a think tank and research institute. Before that, she was the Principal Deputy Director of the U.S. National Cancer Institute and Deputy Director for Strategic Scientific Initiatives there. The music used in this podcast is Solstice by Michael Drake, licensed from artlist.io. I just wanted to say, because there's confusion about these things sometimes, nobody paid to be in this podcast and nobody paid for this podcast. This is independent journalism that I produce in my living room. I'm Vivian Marks. Thanks for listening.